The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The problem is that if that ruling is the D.C. Circuit, then we get round two in the Supreme Court. And you know, even if the Supreme Court is willing to let the D.C. Circuit have the last word, I'd be very surprised if it was, that's going to take yet more time to, to play out. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 16th, 2023. It's another episode of Trump's Trials and Tribulations, this one recorded on December 14th, in front of a live audience on YouTube and Zoom. Joining me in the virtual jungle studio was Anna Bauer, Roger Parloff, both of Lawfare, and special guest Steve Vladek from the University of Texas School of Law. We discussed Jack Smith's petition to the Supreme Court for cert before judgment on the question of presidential immunity. We talked about the court's decision to weigh in on Fisher versus United States and the potential impact on Trump's criminal cases and the other January 6th cases that involve the same statute. We talked about whether Trump's trial in D.C. will be delayed by the Supreme Court's consideration of the immunity question, the status of the civil suit by Georgia election workers against Rudy Giuliani, and we checked in to see what is new in Fulton County. We also took audience questions from our material supporters on Zoom. And to be able to submit questions to the panelists, become a material supporter at lawfaremedia.org slash support. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 16th, Trump Trials and Tribulations. Mr. Smith goes to the Supreme Court, not the D.C. Circuit. Roger, uh, before we turn to Steve as the person who's going to make this mingle the Supreme Court stuff with the substantive stuff here, just remind us uh, what this case is that the Supreme Court granted cert in and uh, why we care about it from a January 6th point of view. Well, they took this case called United States versus Fisher. And the issue is, it's one of the two issues uh, surrounding a key felony statute that's been used in the January 6th cases, a corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding. It's called 18 U.S.C. 1512 C2. And at least 327 uh, January 6th defendants have been charged with it. 
Also, uh, Trump has been charged with essentially two versions of it in the uh, D.C. indictment, that charge and conspiracy to commit that charge. So it's a terribly important issue. There are two challenges. One relates to what's the conduct covered by the statute, or lawyers say the actus reus. And another challenge relates to the state of mind with which you do it, the corruptly part of it. That's called mens rea. And the Fisher case is primarily about conduct. I say primarily because one of the three judges in the D.C. Circuit that ruled on the case felt you had to really discuss the mens rea element in order to decide the case. So we're not really certain. uh, I'm not certain. Maybe Steve has ideas whether they're going to the degree to which they're going to get into the corruptly element. But mainly it's about uh, the conduct issue. And, And the question there is that Uh, The way the statute is uh, written, there's uh, two sections. I say 1512C2. C1 has to do with uh, obstructing a proceeding or corruptly, basically tampering with evidence, uh, destroying records or or spoliation of records or altering records. And then it says, and then section two says, or otherwise, obstructing an official proceeding. And the question is, uh, the government has interpreted that second clause to mean corruptly obstructing an official proceeding. It doesn't relate to a, a record or a document or another object. One judge out of 15 in the DC district court decided that no, that was wrong. And that word otherwise needs to have more meaning. And he interpreted as it's only obstructing an official proceeding by some other method involving tampering with evidence, basically. And and that was appealed. The, the, the Department of Justice won a very narrow victory. There were three different opinions from three different judges. And what makes it really strange is that one of the two judges that voted for the DOJ purported to condition his ruling on a particular interpretation of the corruptly word. And and that throws things off. The the official uh, lead opinion does not adopt that concurrence, uh, but the concurrence, Justin Walker, in a footnote, suggests that his opinion should be the controlling opinion and not the opinion of Florence Pan, who wrote what's designated the opinion of the court. So before we talk about the Supreme Court's adjudication of this, this has a lot of implications for a lot of January 6th, what you call the blue collar January 6th cases. But How does it affect the Trump case? Well, that's in dispute. Uh, Obviously, the January 6th cases, almost all of them would uh, that charge would be dropped because there isn't evidence tampering. The government would say or the special counsel would say and has said that even if this challenge is accepted, it won't affect the Trump charges because, you know, the we have allegations about the alternate 
elector scheme, and that involves falsifying documents. Um, so that seems to be within the meaning of even the 1512C1. But the people arguing, at least one of the attorneys uh, arguing one of these cases, he says, uh, no, uh, uh, the idea here is that the obstruction has to occur by impairing the integrity of evidence. And that wouldn't make sense unless the evidence were being offered at an evidentiary type proceeding. It has to be a quasi-judicial proceeding. So even though 1512 says it applies to congressional proceedings, the interpretation would go on to say, well, that means a congressional investigation or inquiry where you're, you're looking at evidence. And the claim is that the joint session of Congress here to certify the election, all they were supposed to do was open envelopes and count votes. Uh, and that's not the sort of evidentiary hearing that's meant. So uh, it really depends how where the court goes with this as to whether it will impact the Trump case uh, at all. All right. So, Steve, first of all, were you surprised at the CERT grant? And what what surprised you about it if you were? Um, I was I was really surprised for two different and completely unrelated reasons. So the first, you know, what Roger Summary touches on, but which I think we should make more explicit, is these are interlocutory appeals. All three of the defendants whose cases were consolidated in the DC Circuit had their motions to dismiss granted and the DC Circuit reversed. There hasn't been a trial yet in any of their cases. Uh, when the Solicitor General opposed certiorari in those cases, one of its major arguments was the court should let the prosecutions go forward because the government's going to be able to prove that all three of these defendants violated 1512C2 under any of those readings. So the fact that the court is granting cert now, Ben, to me, is big surprise number one and suggests at least some real concern on the part of four or more of the justices um, with some feature, and we, you know, Roger already talked about there are different possibilities here um, of how 1512C2 has been used in January 6 cases. The second surprise is that they only granted Fisher. So, you know, in the DC Circuit, these three rulings by Judge Nichols in Fisher's case, in a case called Lang and a case called Miller, had all been consolidated. It was one opinion by the DC Circuit that treated those three cases the same. Although all three of those defendants, you know, filed their own cert petitions, the Justice Department filed Ben a single consolidated brief in opposition. And even better than that, the Supreme Court's own website used its bizarre, you know, almost inscrutable uh, internal designation to suggest that the court was treating all three cases as being consolidated. So I am surprised by both the timing that they didn't wait for these cases to go to trial and by the fact that they somehow thought to sever Fisher from Lang and Miller when it's not obvious at all to me what's materially different about those cases other than, right, two things, neither of which should explain it, right? Thing number one is who's representing the defendants in these cases, um, right? Fisher is represented by established members of the Supreme Court bar. The other two defendants are not. Thing number two is, you know, Fisher, Ben factually, 
is different from the other two defendants in that he didn't enter the Capitol until after the joint session was over, which, you know, until after it had recessed at, you know, right before two o'clock. Really hard to believe that the Supreme Court granted cert to make that distinction a big one. So, you know, there's some mystery as to why they only took Fisher. And there's even, you know, more mystery to me about why they're stepping in now in this interlocutory posture. What is your sneaking suspicion as to the explanation here? Is there, is it just one of those head scratchers that we won't know until we see oral argument and figure out who's concerned about what? Or do you have a hypothesis as to the general contours of the likely answer here? I mean, you know, Roger put his finger on it. There really are two structural issues in how the government has used 1512 C2 in January 6 prosecutions. One is the mens rea question, which is what does it mean to corruptly obstruct or impede a proceeding? And Judge Walker's concurrence in the D.C. Circuit defined corruptly as one who acts, quote, with an intent to procure an unlawful benefit, either for himself or for some other person. Ben, if that's what the court is worried about, I think that probably doesn't throw that much of a wrench into January 6 cases if they just narrow corruptly a bit, because I think it's actually going to be relatively easy for the government to show. I think the government has shown in many of these cases that the goal of all of this was to benefit President Trump. And third party, if I'm remembering the text yeah. right, benefiting a third party corruptly counts, right? It's- that's right. If, if, unlawful, if I right. do something, if I obstruct something in order to help you become president, that's within scope, right? As long as the benefit's unlawful, which in this case it would be, uh, right? So it would be a violation of the Electoral Count Act, if nothing else. So if it's just the mens rea, you know, that then the timing is a real mystery, right? Because why is the court, the, the mens rea has not been a huge problem. If it's the actus reus, I mean, if the court is taking cert, because at least four justices think that 1512c2 requires more than just general obstruction and requires some kind of evidence impairment, um, which is what Judge Katsis argued for in his dissent in the D.C. Circuit. That's a big deal um, because, you know, Roger mentioned the numbers. I mean, there are hundreds of January 6 cases that include 1512c2 charges. Ben, where I think under the majority's reading, the statute is satisfied. And under Katz's reading, it's not. And, you know, I, I'm one of the folks who thinks it actually is easier to push even the Katz's view against former President Trump, um, you know, trying to manipulate the elector, the slates of electors, the literal physical documents that Congress was considering as part of that official proceeding seems to me to satisfy even the narrower reading of 1512 C2. But for the hundreds of other defendants who have been convicted um, of violating C2 on this broad obstruction theory, now you'd be looking at potential retrials or at the very least, you know, resentencings if they were convicted on other charges as well. Well, and a huge number of them would be, these would be the lead charge in a plea, right? In which they basically agreed, um, Roger, you've studied this closer than anybody, but my impression is that there's a fairly large number of people who, first of all, pled out, and secondly, pled out to something where 1512C2 is the lead charge now. And so then, you know, you'd be in a just totally different place in the sentencing guidelines. 
I mean, right. I, I think that the short version is if the court granted cert because a majority of the court wants to adopt the Katsis reading of 1512C2, then that is going to throw a huge monkey wrench into a lot of the smaller, a lot of the sort of the lower level January 6th prosecutions. And it's going to really be a mess for the district courts and for the federal prosecutors to clean up. But probably, I think, not a huge deal for the charges against President Trump, only two of which are about C2 in the first place. And where I actually think you could have an argument that those would satisfy even that narrower Katz's view. Roger, do you have uh, further thoughts? I think it has to be people who want to adopt the Katz's view because I think they would have waited. There is another case in the D.C. Circuit called U.S. versus Robertson, which is really solely tried to be solely about corruptly. And uh, that would be the case to take up if that's what they're interested in. I think that if they take the Katzis view, those 327 cases go out the window. I don't think they can be salvaged. And there are a lot of people who pled guilty to just that charge, some of whom pled down to that charge, uh, like a lot of the 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 proud boy cooperators, the oath keeper cooperators, you know, they pled to just that charge or conspiracy to commit that charge. So, yeah, this will be a real, it'll it'll be really bad in the January sixth context. And, and I, but I just had one more thing, which is, even though it would not disturb a whole bunch of convictions, including many of the convictions for more serious offenses. And even though in a bunch of the 320 cases Roger mentioned, there'd be other avenues by which the government could go after at least some of these defendants, it will be portrayed by, you know, those who are sympathetic to the January 6th defendants as a categorical repudiation of the entire project in ways that I think are really both dangerous and completely factually lacking, right? It's sort of, you know, maybe that the maybe the government sort of adopt, you know, chose to embrace a reading of a statute that the Supreme Court would later reject, right? That is not per se proof that all of these prosecutions were, you know, ill-motivated witch hunts. Um, right. And and yet I think that's the message. I mean, if you look at how right-wing media is already responding just to the fact that the court granted cert, you know, I think the court has rather kicked a hornet's nest here. And I'm not sure the extent to which the justices fully appreciate that. And just for 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 people who are not steeped in crim pro stuff, if the government, with all the statutes in the world in front of it, makes a plea deal with you to dismiss everything that you could be charged with, except a statute that then later is interpreted narrowly so as not to include the conduct that you're accused of. Is it just the government then shit out of luck on all the other statutes that they could have charged you with that they didn't? Or does it affect the integrity of the larger deal? Or does it matter how the deal was constructed? I don't know the answer to that question. And what they've typically done is they've charged you with a bunch of crimes. You plead guilty and then they dismiss the others. I don't know if those are dismissed with prejudice. I assume they were, uh, but I, I don't know that as a fact, and I haven't come across this fact pattern before. 
So, I mean, it, it happens, you know, it, it does happen. I mean, there's a federal rule of criminal procedure. It's rule 32. It used to be rule 32E. It might have been rewritten that does that. Um, the short version is if you are able, if a defendant is able to sort of um, get out from under his plea agreement, then he ha- the, the plea agreement has to be withdrawn. And so, right. So, so it really comes down to, you know, I, I don't think this is going to be a situation where, where the government is somehow precluded by double jeopardy from bringing those charges again. I think it just gets us back to square, to square one, where we're back to sort of the government being in its original position, although now without the specter of the 1512 C2 charge. And if you have defendants who are convicted of multiple counts where 1512 C2 is only one of them, Right. There's a bunch of case law about what's supposed to happen then. Ben, usually it's just resentencing, where the question is just, would the sentence have been different had you been convicted of two charges instead of three? So, you know, I, I don't think the real the reality is not that a decision in favor of Fisher or in favor of the Katz's view of 1512 C2 would exonerate the however many of the defendants have only 1512 C2 charges, but it would be a massive headache because the government would presumably have to go back and bring a bunch of these cases over again, perhaps through other statutes. And, you know, Ben, it's not for nothing that this would now be in the fall of 2024, when, you know, I think the the notion that the government's going to be able to move quickly on these is hard to believe. And where by the time those cases actually get to trial or plea deal, it's possible there's a different administration in place. Right. So before we move on, I know a lot of our listeners and viewers will want to know the answer to this. Steve, your former uh, small group member at Yale Law School, Elmer Stewart Rhodes, I think you're the only one of us who, who went to school with, um, with a January 6th defendant, much less a, um, a seditious conspiracy defendant. Would he be affected by this case or is seditious conspiracy, that conviction just blows everything else out of the water. Does he have one of these in in his case? So, you know, I, I, was, tr- I was trying to go back and look. I don't remember if there was a C2 conviction among the many other charges that my small group mate pled gu- uh, was convicted of. But I mean, all that would entail, Ben, is resentencing. And and just to Ben to go back to where you and I uh, uh, st- uh, started our our friendship, the the most recent D.C. Circuit decision about how vacated convictions affect resentencing is an al balul, <laughs> um, wh- in the context of the military commissions. And just to be clear, the the review is fairly deferential. So you know, I, I think the worst case scenario for folks who have been convicted of a bunch of things, including offenses more serious. Then 1512C2 is new sentencing hearings that may result in very similar sentences. The the cases where this is going to make a huge difference are the cases where it was only 1512C2. And Roger, how many of those cases are there? Do we know? It's not a huge number. It's true that most will have, you know, assaulted police officers and so on. But there are a number where it's that's the top charge and the rest are misdemeanors. And but I'm more concerned about a lot of people that pled guilty to just this charge. And I don't know exactly uh, as, as Steve. I hope Steve's right. But, you know, most of these people did nothing to it's not like they challenged. There's only 
these three people that challenged this statute. So, or that, uh, that's probably not right, but uh, most people aren't haven't challenged. I, you think that they too would be, uh, uh, the government would be able to, to go after them and, and, uh, uh, try to try to bring new charges or restore the ones they dismissed. Uh, I, I, I don't know about that. Plus it's, it's so, so hard to do it. Uh, well, I, I don't, I, I so don't. I'll say, I mean, the double, the, the Supreme court's double jeopardy jurisprudence distinguishes between dismissals for sort of evidentiary reasons and dismissals for non-evidentiary reasons. And so, you know, I think, I don't think the government's going to have a double jeopardy problem in trying to bring charges against folks if this gets thrown out. I, I think there's going to be messy litigation about whether people who pled guilty can somehow get some kind of collateral relief um, under 28 USC section 2255, whether those whose appeals are still going, right? I mean, it's just, Ben, it's the, the it's going to, the short version is it's going to be a mess. Right. <laughs> and and, and, um, I, I, and I suspect that the government's merits brief in the Supreme Court is going to spend at least some time trying to paint a picture for the justices of just how much of a mess this is going to be. Because the way it was briefed at the cert stage was very sort of, I don't want to say perfunctory, Ben, but very sort of like, you know, we'll deal with this later. And the Supreme right. Court clearly says, no, we're going to deal with this now. Now, and we should just say now probably means, you know, argument in March or April, right, at a decision by June. All right. So next Supreme Court issue, Jack Smith decides, and I was annoyed at myself for not thinking of this on his behalf, to do the um, kind of jump shift and uh ask the Supreme Court to tell the DC Circuit that it doesn't really matter very much, which is, you know, uh, not what the DC Circuit ever likes to hear. It seems to me a very smart move on Smith's part, because if, if he wins, he saves himself however much time the DC Circuit would have uh, taken, and time is of the essence for him. Uh, and if he loses, he's no worse off than he was, you know, then he has to tell the D.C. Circuit to expedite things, which he kind of has to do anyway. Um, so, Steve, is there is there more risk to this strategy than I'm perceiving or is this just the right move for him to have done at this point? So I think the answer to both questions is yes. Right. That that there is a, there's one other risk, but I still think it's the right move. So the other risk is that the court expedites the heck out of this case and then rules for Trump, which, you know, but that But that's just getting to where they were going to end up faster. I actually think that's a better outcome than the D.C. Circuit takes some time and the Supreme Court takes some time and then, you know, rules for Trump. Which is why I think this was the right move. So um, just, just you know, 30 seconds on, on the process here. I mean, I think the, you know, cert before judgment, which is what Smith did, is one piece, but he also asked the court to expedite consideration of the cert petition. And what I was really, again, surprised by was how quickly the court agreed to expedite its consideration. So within like four or five hours of, you know, Smith's filing hitting the docket, the court had already granted his motion to expedite the briefing so that Trump's response is due next Wednesday. That to me, Ben, is a sign that there's a lot of interest in the court in moving pretty quickly on this. And, you know, by historical standards, this is the kind of case 
where the court would have moved this quickly. The stakes are not as high as, for example, the steel seizure case or the Nazi saboteurs or, you know, the Watergate tapes. Particularly not for the defendants. No, but, but you know, if you think, if, so if, if you're measuring it historically compared to when the court granted cert before judgment in the old days, you could argue it's a bit of a stretch. If you look at the last four years where the court has granted cert before judgment been 19 times, you know, in cases that look nowhere near as important as this, in cases that weren't even constitutional cases, I think the the argument for the court resolving this sooner rather than later becomes pretty hard to reject. And, and I've been fascinated by the attempts by folks on the right to portray this as some kind of insidious move. It's like asking the Supreme Court that has six Republican nominees on it to resolve whether former President Trump is immune is somehow insidious. I, you know, I maybe that's just a point that like there's nothing Jack Smith can do that anyone on that side will think is above board. So I'm curious, and Roger and Anna, you know, jump in on this as well, um, if you have thoughts. It seems to me if, like lots of people are saying Trump's claim here is trivial or frivolous. It's an issue of first impression, at least in the sense that we've never indicted a former president who so therefore had to plead it before. On the other hand, you have some real executive power people on that court, and there's no doctrine that says this immunity doesn't exist. And so it seems to me a sort of weird Rorschach test for the court that can't entirely be disaggregated from how they feel about Donald Trump. It might be helpful to break out the three different immunity questions that actually are all mushed into one here. Sure, um, go ahead. So, so I think I think the frivolous the frivolous argument is the argument that because he was acquitted in his second yeah, the impeachment, double jeopardy argument is trivial. Okay, good. On the question of whether former presidents are immune from criminal prosecution, you know, you know as well as anyone that there are actually two pieces to that. The first is whether the sort of the broad absolute immunity that the court recognized in civil cases in Nixon versus Fitzgerald also applies to the president. And I will say it seems relevant here that the Office of Legal Counsel, which tends to err on the side of the president, thinks the answer is no. Um, But even if it did, you still have the question of whether the particular conduct for which former President Trump has been indicted was within the outer perimeter of his official duties. Because if not, it's outside of Nixon versus Fitzgerald anyway. Um, and so it seems to me that like it's, you know, you could very possibly build a coalition of justices to say, we can assume without deciding that the principles underlying Nixon versus Fitzgerald might apply to former presidents, but we don't have to worry about that here because everything that Trump is being indicted for was not within the outer perimeter of his official duties. And so therefore, no immunity either way. Like, there's it, 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 that's, it's, yeah. it's, it's funny because I actually think the question of the, whether the immunity exists is an easier question than the question of the, of the parameters of Nixon v. Fitzgerald. Roger, what do you think? Is it Are you principally anxious about this case to the extent that you're anxious about it because of the time suck it could represent or because of the outcome that it could produce? It's mainly uh, the time element. I had not, I, I thought the the issues as they were briefed were, it, and and the art and the 
ruling that came down was extremely strong. And, and the fact that there are these two OLC decisions that came down in the same direction over the years from uh, different administrations. And I thought it was a very strong ruling. I, I'm quite concerned about how I, I, I don't exactly see how they get to the March 4th trial. It's it's sort of a question of how much do you have to push it off? Maybe, maybe, maybe not till after the election, but I, I, I think that's a really tough date to still meet at this point because we're just, things are backing up all the, you know, all the motions and uh, that were sort of staggered that, and, and, things like jury questionnaires and and just all the preliminaries the 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 motions in limine the the rulings on sepa section 6 uh it's just a lot to get done by by march 4th what do you what do you think anna are are you um similarly despairing of the march 4th trial deadline trial of date yeah, I, I don't see any way that the March 4th trial date is is still going to happen at this point. Um, the question is just how much it may be delayed. Uh, you know, of course, I, I've been wrong in the past. I could be wrong before, but I, I do think that it would be very unlikely to happen at this point. And especially too, you know, I, I I know that Judge Chutkin said that the pretrial deadlines are held in abeyance, and and that they she will reconsider, uh, you know, what to do about the trial date uh, when there's no longer a stay on the case. But I I think that any judge is going to be reluctant to, you know, if there's a significant passage of time or even, you know, a few weeks that go by where, you know, there's been no burdens of litigation on the defendant and uh, to then suddenly expect them to uh, immediately be able to meet all the deadlines that they previously, you know, had been kind of paused. I, I think that if this were not uh, if this were any other defendant other than Trump, I, I would be thinking to myself that that uh, is something that a judge, you know, should not uh, expect of a, of a defendant. And so I think, you know, to be fair to uh, the the Trump team here, it, it's it also seems to be the case that I just I, I don't think they can be expected to kind of just like pick back up and, and not have at least some some kind of justifiable reason to argue for a delay since the case has been stayed. So, you know, just my my two cents, but I, I'm really curious. I, I had to walk away for a second, but Steve, did you say when you thought the earliest that the court would would be able to de- decide if they, you know, uh, uh, do take up this question um, and what your estimation uh, would be for, for the trial date? I didn't. Um, but, you know, I, it's worth playing this out. So I think the court, the Supreme Court has put itself in a position where it will be able to either grant or deny cert before judgment probably by the end of next week, you know, next Friday, if I had to guess. And I don't think the justices would want this hanging over their heads during the holidays. And if they granted cert before judgment and a next Thursday or Friday, I think they'd want argument in January. 
You know, I mean, why why move this fast just to slow down on the merits? And so I I wouldn't be surprised if they grant cert before judgment. And that's an if. If we had a January argument and a decision from the court by mid-February? Now, just I mean, I agree with you that even in that universe, which is the Supreme Court moving at lightning speed or or even ludicrous speed, if if folks remember Spaceballs, there's no way you get to a March 4th trial date. But you do get a trial date sometime next year, um, right? And and you know, a February decision by the Supreme Court, presume assuming it doesn't say Trump is immune, in which case the trial date becomes a bit of a moot point. Um, you know, I think probably is enough to have a trial date. You know, in June, maybe July. Um, but you know, that's that's where the trial lawyers are probably in a better position than I am. The the other thing we should throw in here is, you know, it's worth not forgetting the DC Circuit in this conversation. So two things that I think ought to be sort of articulated. The first is the reason why Judge Chutkin had to stop um, is not because of Jack Smith's filing; it's because of Trump's appeal. So you know, Trump appealed Judge Chutkin's denial of his motion to dismiss to the DC Circuit, and then the, that appeal automatically right divests the district court of the ability to keep going, at least on issues related to the scope of the appeal. So, you know, one of the other things that happened right after the Supreme Court started to step in is the D.C. Circuit issued a briefing schedule that has, you know, the Trump's brief due uh, on the 23rd. Um, it has the government's brief due on the 30th. It has the reply brief due January 2nd. And that also, to me, smells like a January argument. So, you know, I think the D.C. Circuit is basically putting itself in a position to also have a January argument if the Supreme Court denies cert before judgment. And then, you know, we could similarly have a ruling by late January, early February. The problem is that if that ruling is the D.C. Circuit, then we get round two in the Supreme Court. And, you know, even if the Supreme Court is willing to let the D.C. Circuit have the last word, I'd be very surprised if it was, that's going to take yet more time to to play out. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, so... I am going to be the one who stands up for the March 4th trial deadline uh, or trial date. And I'm going to do it partly because I'm just contrary. um, And I want somebody to make the argument for it. And none of you guys did. And some partly because I actually think it's uh, plausible. Look, nobody will say the word, the, the words here because the judiciary is supposed to be apolitical and Jack Smith is um, also supposed to behave apolitically. 
But there's a very simple reality here, which is the reason the March 4th trial date matters is because of the November election date. Otherwise, we wouldn't really care whether it was March, April, May, June, or next fall. We care because Donald Trump might be the next president, and that would mean this case would end uh, by one means or another. So uh, the Supreme Court's very aware of that, as is everybody else. And these are uh, nine very sophisticated Washington actors. And I think the argument, you know, forced them you know, that that they, they're going to want to resolve this in a way that they do not get blamed for this put getting pushed back until after the election. No one will ever mention November as a real date. No one's ever going to mention it as a as a factor. It's a factor. And uh, and so I think they're whatever they're going to do, they're going to do very quickly. All right. Let us move on to everybody's uh, favorite appeals court, the 11th Circuit. And uh, the 11th Circuit has a big oral argument tomorrow. It's in the Fulton County case. Anna, give us a, remind us uh, what is going on and why the 11th Circuit is uh, meeting tomorrow to hear oral arguments. Right. So uh, the oral arguments tomorrow before the 11th Circuit panel are are on Mark Meadows' ongoing quest to remove his Fulton County criminal charges to federal court, from state court to federal court. Uh, Judge Steve Jones in the Northern District of Georgia already heard argument on, on that motion previously and denied Meadows' request to move his case to federal court. And if folks recall, the the statute here at issue has basically three prongs. One is that uh, you have to be a federal officer. Uh, the other is that the conduct that is alleged in the indictment has uh, some kind of causal connection or is related to uh, a federal office. And then the third is that you have you can raise a colorable federal defense against the charges. And Judge Jones, really, in his opinion, denying Meadows' uh, quest for removal, focused on that second prong. So whether or not basically Meadows was acting within the scope of his office uh, and Meadows has appealed. And we now have this uh, three judge panel of the 11th Circuit. It's it's Chief Judge uh, Pryor, uh, who is a, a Bush appointee. Uh, and then it is Judge Rosenbaum, who is an Obama appointee, and Judge Abudu, who is the, the newest member of uh, the 11th Circuit, who was uh, uh, nominated and, and confirmed by the Senate to the bench, um, uh, excuse me, nominated by Biden and then uh, confirmed by the Senate. Um, and, and so it'll be very interesting what I'm looking for in terms of listening to these oral arguments is the question of whether this panel might agree with Judge Jones in his reasoning or if they might end up you know, agreeing with his ultimate conclusion, but for a different reason. Uh, and the reason that I, I mentioned that is because we've had uh, previously a question that came down from uh, the from the emergency stay panel uh, who asked whether it, it uh, the parties debrief this question of whether or not the statute, the removal statute applies to former federal office holders, because, of course, Meadows here is the former uh, former federal officer. So 
I'm really looking to see if maybe they will take that route. Uh, one reason being that there's a case called United States versus Pate that the 11th Circuit recently decided uh, in an en banc decision. And in that decision, they looked at a criminal statute that criminalizes retaliatory liens uh, against any officer and, or employee of the United States. Uh, and they kind of had this similar textualist question of whether, you know, does that just apply to retaliatory liens that are uh, filed against current officers? Or does it also apply to people who have left office and then someone files retaliatory liens against them on account of, you know, the, uh, things that they did while they're in office or on account of their position that they used to hold? And in that decision, Judge Rosenbaum, Judge Voodoo, and Judge Pryor were all in the majority. Judge Pryor wrote the decision and they ended up saying, you know, no, the statute does not apply to former officers. And so they did take that very kind of textualist uh, look at, at this statute, which could very easily be the same kind of reasoning that they come to here, even though there's different, you know, policy considerations, the language is a little bit different. But it, it seems to be the case that they could come to, you know, a very similar decision. So, Ben, I know we've talked about before how the two of us kind of agreed that it just can't be the case that the removal statute doesn't apply to uh, former federal officers because of the policy reasons at play. It would defeat the entire purpose of right. the statute. And, and, and so, I agree. Right. And so, Steve, I, I would love to hear your thoughts. And then also, so in my mind, the reason this is significant about if that's the route they go is because it seems to me that that would be something that would be quite ripe for Supreme Court intervention if there is an appeal, because that just cannot be right. Uh, so I, I thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I've I've said this all along, although gotten into more trouble than I thought I would, that that, that has to be right, that, you know, the, the federal officer removal statute was expanded after the Civil War to prevent states from harassing the federal government by going after its officers. It would make no sense to allow states to harass former federal officers and deny them the same protection. And to me, Ed, everything turns on the, the, the more sort of, you know, are you being tried because of official federal government acts question? And, you know, again, here, I think Meadows is actually almost a unicorn. Because Meadows has the strongest argument that all of the, you know, backroom manipulative stuff he was doing was part of his job because his job was basically to do Trump's bidding as opposed to cabinet secretaries or other government officers who have more clearly defined duties. Yeah, so I agree with you that Meadows has the strongest case. He also has the only plausible case, you know, like a whole bunch of the others are like, you know, I, I, I get removal because I'm a fake elector, you know, and, and in my capacity as a fake elector, as a, which, by the way, if you were a real elector, that's not a federal office either. No, no, but the, 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 you have to admire the chutzpah of it. Oh, I, lo I, I love it so very much. All right. So, uh, Anna, you are in the Washington Post's cubby uh, at the E. Barrett Prettyman Courthouse because they are considering the Giuliani matter. Uh, give us an update. How much of the trial have you sat through and, and what, what are your impressions? 
Yeah, so I planned to be here the whole week, but I unfortunately got uh, sick earlier in the week. So I missed the first two and a half days of the, the damages trial. Giuliani, of course, has already been held liable for defamation in, in default because he did not comply with his discovery obligations in the case brought by Shea Moss and, and Ruby Freeman. And in, in case folks need a reminder of who those women are, uh, not that most people who listen to this podcast probably do, but uh, those are the uh, Georgia election workers in Fulton County during the 2020 election who uh, were the subject of false claims by Giuliani and, and many others uh, that they were uh, pulling suitcases full of ballots from underneath the table at the State Farm Arena and and that they changed votes and, and stuffed ballots in, in favor of Joe Biden. And and they have sued Giuliani. And this has been long ongoing litigation uh, that has culminated in this damages trial during the course of the week, Shea Moss testified uh, about the impact that uh, Giuliani's false statements had on her and her life. I, I missed that testimony, but um, I have heard from those who, who were here to watch it that it was a, a very impactful testimony and, and, and very moving at times. Uh, I was here to watch Ruby Freeman's testimony yesterday, which was similarly tearful uh, and moving. Someone has a question, I believe, in the Q&A, so maybe I'll just go ahead and mention it now because it kind of relates. Auntie, do you want to go ahead and, and ask that question so that I can discuss a little bit? Yeah, so... Uh... How dramatic an impact uh, do you think video and other recordings have been in the defamation trial? And uh, do you think uh, it's likely that the jury will uh, send a message? Thanks. Yeah. So, so thanks for bringing this up. The reason I I was I wanted you to ask it now because I I think that it's a really good point and it's something I've been thinking about as I've been watching Ruby Freeman testify. Uh, Giuliani was supposed to testify today, but he did not end up doing so. But one of the things that was kind of the most emotionally uh, really affecting moments of, of yesterday was seeing uh, in the exhibits, uh, which people are, are not able to see if through the, you know, written reporting on the case, but we were able to see in the media room, in the courtroom, but you see these exhibits of the, the dozens of, of hateful emails and death threats that Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss received. You listen to the voicemails uh, that they received that are racist, that are, you know, threatening them with uh, things that are just unspeakable. Yeah, just to be clear, these are not garden variety, you know, racist taunts. These are like, please, you know, please commit suicide so you can spare us the ammunition. We're going to hang you from the Capitol Dome and I want to be close enough to hear your neck snap. I mean, this is, you know, the real deal. Yeah, yeah, it's thing, and and I, you know, I don't want to go into it too much, uh, but people can go and you know read the the uh, on Twitter. The I was posting some of it yesterday, but it's really awful, grotesque stuff that it makes you because I I think with January six cases and the Trump cases in general, people tend to talk about them as 
you know, the victims are democracy itself, which is true. But, you know, there are also real human victims and these women, you know, seeing them testify, it was already something that I knew that their lives were torn apart by by what happened to them during the 2020 election. But it was something that you really kind of see the gravity of it. And, and you, you really kind of just, it, I mean, it, it's, it's tough to listen to. I know that it was in, it, from, you know, the, the way that they were presenting on the stand it, it with, you know, crying, it was very hard for them to, to, to get through testimony. Um, I know that it was very difficult for them. And, and so you just really, you know, put the kind of human face to, you know, the harm of of what happened during the 2020 election. And and it gave a, you know, also a preview of these. These are folks who are expected to be witnesses and, you know, very important witnesses in the upcoming Fulton County case. A lot of those charges relate to you know, pressure campaigns against Ruby Freeman. In fact, today, one of the individuals who was charged with that alleged pressure campaign against Ruby Freeman showed up to watch the trial. That's Harrison Floyd, who's one of Trump's co-defendants in Fulton County. So it it really has been a an interesting experience. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of new information, but uh, it's something that I I think that in the Fulton County case, I, I feel I, I'm very glad that there is the live streaming and public access to to that because, you know, in federal court, it's seeing that video and hearing that audio and listening to that testimony. It's something that I think uh, reporting it out through the written word just doesn't really do justice to. And in terms of whether or not the jury will send a message, sorry, I want to move on, but I don't know. Um, I was not here when the expert witness testified about, you know, the damages, uh, the, the reputational harm. So I'm not sure that I can I can really speak to what they might do or how they might have judged that uh, witness. I do think that the closing statements from Freeman and Moss's attorney was very uh, powerful, uh, and I could uh, very well see you know the the punitive damages being significant, and maybe they will send a message, but. I I really just at this point am am unsure what you know I can't put a number amount to it so we will see. All right, we are going to go to audience questions, folks. Richard Wattenbarger, uh, the floor is yours. I am. I guess I picked a, a good day since uh, Steve Vladek's here, so maybe this is in his wheelhouse. But um, I've heard some, or I've seen some discussion that the Supreme Court's rulings on the use of executive power has been inconsistent between the Trump and Biden administrations. And one thing I have in mind are the, the uh, case such as the student loan forgiveness one. Um, so I realize there's a point in which one uh, ends up comparing apples and oranges as far as the actual cases are, that come before the court are concerned. Um, are, are these concerns about the court's consistency warranted? And should that raise additional concerns with respect to any Trump cases that the court will rule on? Steve, why do you want to take a first crack at that? So... I think it might be helpful to to, to to focus on three different categories of cases. 
So on sort of pure, like constitutional executive power cases, I actually think the court has been fairly consistent. Um, the court likes executive power um, and especially likes presidential power. Um, and that's been true really for most of the last 10 years, but especially since Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed in 2018. There aren't that many of those cases, and they tend to show up in sort of nerdy spaces like firing patent judges. But at least there, I think the court has been pretty consistent. The second category of cases is executive branch policies and whether they're authorized by the underlying statutes. So that's like the student loan cases. That's a bunch of immigration cases. And I think there, there probably is at least some something to the charge that the court has been more skeptical of Biden administration arguments about what statutes like the HEROES Act authorize than it was about Trump administration arguments in cases like the travel ban case. Some of that, though, might also reflect that the court is hardening around a new doctrine, the major questions doctrine, that should disempower administrative agencies across any administration, um, and that that really hadn't happened until very, very, very late in the Trump administration. So, yes, I think there's inconsistency there. The third category of cases are cases about Trump himself. And, you know, one of the things that I think we don't talk about enough is that Trump's actual track record before the Supreme Court in cases about him is terrible. Yeah, not not good. Right. Um, and the court has actually, I think to its credit, really resisted the temptation to side with Trump in, for example, the subpoena cases, um, in Mazars, in the NR, in the NARA documents dispute last January. I mean, like, you know, there, there's, there isn't any one of those cases where Trump has won. And so I think, you know, where the court is being inconsistent is when it comes to executive branch policies. But when it comes to constitutional questions of executive power or, you know, personal misconduct by Trump, the court's actually been consistent and at least in the latter category, I have problems with the former, um, to my mind, pretty good. All right. Jeff asks, if Trump gets convicted in his January 6th trial before the election, will that cause a flood of 14th Amendment challenges to him being on the ballot? I, I, I will take a crack at this and see if any of you disagree with me. The 14th Amendment, Section 3, does not specify that the threshold for disqualification is conviction of the crime of insurrection or a fact a crime involving a fact pattern of insurrection. The threshold is, did you take the oath and did you engage in insurrection? That's more of an empirical question. And so I don't think honestly that it should turn on whether he's convicted, um, whether it might because the argument that he did engage is way more powerful if a jury of his peers has convicted him of it. I don't know. My guess is the Supreme Court is going to have something to say about the meaning of Section 3 that will maybe carry us through that. But God, I hope not. <laughs> it's certainly possible that the, the case for it will look a whole lot better if he's convicted. What do you guys think? Can I just say two quick things, and then I'd love to hear Roger and Anna's thoughts? Yeah. So so really quickly, um, first, I mean, it's worth remembering that there are criminal statutes where one of the consequences of conviction is automatic disqualification, and none of those statutes are in the indictment against former President Trump. So 
you know, you'd have a pretty good argument actually in the other direction that these are not the kinds of criminal statutes that bring with them automatic disqualification. The second point is more atmospheric, but, uh, you know, at, contra the Supreme Court's apparent interest in the immunity question and its apparent interest in the 1512c2 question, I don't think the court wants anything to do with the Section 3 question. Um, so you think they'll just let him be knocked off the ballot? And, no, in I think I, no, I think they're hoping against hope that no state court actually keeps him off the ballot. The, they'll have to take it up if someone does. Right. But if, you know, but if Colorado says actually Trump can be on the ballot, if Minnesota says Trump can be on the ballot, I think the court wants to avoid that. Because, Ben, there are two terrible alternatives, right? One is the Supreme Court stopping him from running for office. And the other is the Supreme Court not stopping not him from stopping. running for office, <laughs> at which point he turns around and says the Supreme Court exonerated him. What do you think, Roger? You've, you've been following the Section 3 cases with the same neurotic intensity that you've been following uh, January 6, 1512 C2 cases. Do you think, A, the Supreme Court is going to be muscled into this area and B, that, the, the, that there's a material difference in how the question plays out if you have a conviction for insurrectionary-like behavior that federal prosecutors don't call insurrection? Well, I'm, I'm really hoping this gets sorted out and decided earlier than that. I mean, if we are, you know, still at the, you know, months from now, and these are live questions, uh, that's going to be a terrible situation. I, I'm really hoping that the Colorado case will give the court an opportunity to take this up and just decide it and get this behind us. Unfortunately, I don't see that happen because there's a lot of cases where people are kicking the can down the road and for good reasons. But, you know, the case for keeping somebody off a primary ballot is much weaker than keeping somebody off the general election ballot, because usually the primary is controlled by the political party. And if they want to run a disqualified person, so be it. The, the secretary of state often doesn't have a say. But you just keep getting further and further to this train wreck. And and I think the questioner is right that, yeah, the, this will give added impetus especially as the evidence comes in. And, you know, a lot of the cases now are based on the January 6th report. This additional evidence is just more and more, you know, it's just overwhelming. Uh, there was an insurrection. He did participate in it. And what are you going to do about it? And somebody needs to decide these questions. Yeah. So I will just say on this point that I, I, I could not agree more with Roger you can, as the Minnesota Supreme Court did, do a technical dodge of this question. And it may be in some very formal way an exercise in judicial restraint. But what it really is, is it's kicking the can down the road to the point where there's an actual crisis. And just a reminder, you know, when you're dealing with Congress, somebody elected to Congress or to the Senate, um, there's this other mechanism other than a judge saying you can't, you know, you're disqualified, which is that the Congress can refuse to seat the member, which, by the way, has happened a lot of times. 
And so Congress, in fact, one of the arguments about Section 3 is that Congress is, at least in congressional cases, has the exclusive authority to implement Section 3. I'm not sure I think that's right, but it certainly has the authority. Here, you don't have anything like that. If you put Donald Trump on the ballot and he's, a, you know, he's not constitutionally qualified to be president, there's no other mechanism. It's not like, you know, on, on, a, a, on inauguration day, the chief justice is going to be like, nope, sorry, can't administer the oath. You're constitutionally ineligible. And if he did that, it would be perfectly reasonable for Trump to sweep him aside and say, okay, Clarence Thomas, come administer the oath. You know, and so if, if you're on the ballot and the electors elect you and you're not qualified, it's not clear that there's another enforcement mechanism for this. And so I just think it's like too clever by half for the courts to avoid this question and they should answer it sooner rather than later. I'll just say that I'll, I'll just say like, like like the end of the movie War Games. Sometimes the only winning move is not to play. Agreed. That is, if you were giving political advice to John Roberts, that would be the political advice that you would give him. But I'm talking about doing the right thing, Steve. Have All you right. met the Supreme Court of the United States, <laughs> Simon? You have the penultimate question today. Thanks very much. I'm wondering if you could update me on the status of Rudy Giuliani's uh, apparently many and varied legal problems, uh, I guess, other than the ones that uh, Anna Bauer was updating us about today. How many felony charges is he facing and in, in which courts? Do we know how many cases he appears to be an unindicted co-conspirator in? And uh, what about the various disciplinary proceedings and civil suits that he's involved in? I'm trying to wrap my head around what that man's world looks like right now. Thank you. Yep. So I can give you a little bit of a rundown, Anna. Um, I'm going to miss stuff. So, you know, chime in. He's got a bunch of uh, felony counts in Fulton County, Georgia. He is named as an unindicted co-conspirator in the federal case against Trump. Uh, and as all of the unindicted co-conspirators in that case, he remains unindicted. Not clear to me that he will remain unindicted. I think there's some point at which the unindicted co-conspirators are going to likely be indicted. At least that's my instinct. He has bar disciplinary proceedings in New York and in Washington, um, and he has a variety of civil suits, uh, including the one we discussed today. Um, those are the matters that are coming to, to my mind. Anna, do you have more Rudy woes that I'm not thinking of? No, I think that you pretty much covered it. Did you, you said bar uh, proceedings that there's a decision pending in the, in DC about, cause his license is suspended, but there hasn't been a, determination as to his disbarment, as I understand it. DC and, and New York also, I, I think. Yeah. And, yeah. All right. Joyce. I'm looking forward to um, next week's argument where Trump's team is going to twist themselves into a pretzel to explain to the Supreme court why they don't want to take up the immunity claim um, on his behalf. And I'm wondering if Smith will ever put it out there on the public record 
that if Trump believes, truly believes that all this is a witch hunt and that he's an innocent victim of a purely political prosecution, why wouldn't he want his day in court as quickly as possible so he could prove his innocence? Steve, do you want to wrap us up with this one? Internal consistency has never been a hallmark of legal filings on behalf of former President Trump. But I, I am, I am. So I will just say, I am not only looking forward to reading President Trump's brief in opposition. I am really looking forward to reading Jack Smith's reply, because um, what just for those who sort of, you know, I, I, I speak here from a little bit of experience. The best brief to write, the most fun brief to write in the Supreme Court is the cert stage reply brief, because you only get three thousand words, and so you have to be both like pithy and memorable. And I think, you know, I think Smith is going to have some fun pointing out all of the ways in which the arguments I suspect we'll get from former President Trump don't really auger against the Supreme Court's intervention. I think he waived that brief. So, he, no, he, no, he waived he waived the 14 day waiting. Pe- so this is nerdy Supreme Court procedure. So usually there's a 14 day waiting period after a brief in opposition is filed before the case will be distributed. He waived the 14-day waiting period so that the court could move as quickly as possible. I'm sure he is still going to file a reply. We are going to leave it on that note note of certainty. Uh, From France, Roger Parloff. From Washington, D.C., Anna Bauer. From Austin, Texas, Steve Vladek. And from The Hague, it's Ben Wittes. Uh, Thank you all for joining us today from for different jurisdictions. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also be able to pose questions to our panel, become part of the discussion, by joining our Zoom webinars available only to our supporters. It is time for Lawfare's end of the year mailbag. Submit questions to lawfaremedia.org slash article slash mailbag 2023. This podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Your audio engineer this episode was Anna Hickey of Lawfare. Our music is, of course, performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.